You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, University of California, and listener-supported radio. And this is Method to the Madness, a show coming at you from the Public Affairs Department here on KALX that is dedicated to celebrating the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar, and today we are lucky to have Tudi Mar with us. Hi, Tudi. Hello, Ali. Uh, and Tootie is the founder of Pogo Parks, coming out of Richmond, California. So Tootie, um, welcome to the show. Thank you. And um, the first question I always ask entrepreneurs like yourself is, give me the problem statement. You know, entrepreneurs are all about solving problems. What problem are you trying to solve? problem is all about children and play. I mean, to, um, in order for children to be happy, they have, oh, in order for children to be healthy, they have to play. And... Um, so I go into so many of these city parks, and they're just so boring and so dull and homogenous, and they all look the exact same. And when you really break it down, there's very few opportunities for children to actually play in 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 wild ways, which which is how kids need to be be playing. So kind of my first thought was just play leads to health. And define wild ways. It's an interesting term you just used. What, what's wild ways? Mean? Well, always. I mean. I think back into my own childhood. You know, I think that if you look at every entrepreneur, anyone who's done well or has been um, successful creatively, they've started a company, they've created a product, they've made a movie. If you look deep into their childhood, they all had rich play ex- experiences. So for me, um, I mean, I started a uh, um, uh, block newspaper. I um, created a um, play inside our garage and sold the tickets to people in the neighborhood. Um, we, we, we built forts and dark rooms and, uh, you know, all sorts of things. So, um, rich play experience, kind of, kind of this wild play where you can, um, build whatever comes in to your mind, set up games. I mean, with no adults to come in and tell you what to do and not do. Um, yeah, that's wild play. Okay, thanks for that definition. Um, and so that's a really, you know, um, exciting and noble cause. And I believe you went to Cal, right? I did, 1978 to 83. And I took one year off and I lived in Switzerland. But I also actually was uh, part of the UC Berkeley, the volleyball team. So I was the first wave of scholarship athletes. So I like saying that I got into Berkeley, not because of my brains, but my brawn. <laughs> was that, is that all because of the Title IX stuff? Correct. Yeah. So first wave of um, scholarship athletes at Cal. Wow. Okay. So, um, so you were a volleyball player. I was. And, um, and then you graduated. You probably didn't graduate with the intent to go and um, champion wild play. So yeah. give us a little bit about your background and your story and how you arrived at this kind of problem you wanted to solve. Yeah. Um, so I graduated in 1983. And the funniest thing is I had never for a second thought what I was going to do next. I never even thought about a career. And suddenly that I was out and I had no clue, like, now I've got to earn money and what am I going to do? So I knew somebody who owned a bond firm in LA. And my job was sitting in this back room with absolutely no windows with four men who smoked. (laughs) And my job was to type up the transfers on bonds. So if someone would buy a bond from a bank that I would actually type up the transfer, uh, slip. And, um, 
So uh, they made me wear nylons. My um, nickname is Tootie, but my given name is Susan, but I've never been called Susan my entire life. They insisted they put a plaque on my desk saying Susan. So they took away my name. They made me wear <laughs> nylons. I was stuck in a room with four men smoking. And I just, um, so it had turned out that I had played volleyball in Switzerland, and one of my uh, teammates' cousin was the inventor of the Swatch Watch in Switzerland. So I just thought, wow, man, I mean, um, could I import these swatches into the United States? So you'd seen them before they'd come to so the So I had seen them when they had just come out in Switzerland, but they hadn't come to, to the United States yet. So what I would do is I'd go to the Bond firm each day from 8 till 5. I had my hour lunch. Then I'd get on a bus and go to the... Um, I'd go to the uh, business library at UCLA and started to to look up how to import export, how to start your company, what is cash flow, what's a balance sheet, and then um, I contacted Swatch and just happened to get the head guy who uh, who asked me to do a business plan, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll do one, and then I went straight to the UCLA library to figure out what is a business plan, <laughs> and I wrote it. So when I did. The presentation that he said, you know, your your plan is is bull, but um, I I like your chutzpah, and he gave me the starting capital to to found Swatch Watch in the eleven Western states. Wow! So um, you're the reason when I was in school, like I was in, in in school in the '80s, that everybody had swatches in California. Is that right? Yeah. So th- that was my main thing is just getting sw- and, and Swatch was so creative and and uh, yeah, so yeah. For our younger listeners who maybe don't know, what what was Swatch? It was a huge craze in that time. What was it that made it so cool? So cool was that um, they took a Rolex watch, which was one of the you know the, the greatest the watches in the world, and they took they figured out how to slim the amount of part parts down by a third and then have a a robot make the entire thing. So they were very cheap, inexpensive wrist watches from Switzerland for $30 at retail. And then they got all these incredible artists to come and make them really a design um, statement. And this um, kind of formula of just inexpensive, high quality, but high design just took off and Swatch became a phenomena. Like we started with zero in sales in 1983. And in in our region in 1986, the the watch sales were 30 million. Wow. In three years. Three years. So Swatch just became a phenomenal. 30 million in 86 dollars. That's a lot more right. right now. So part of, and then one of our most, uh, the most successful product at Swatch was the clear Swatch watch. Um, so what I did was I started another company called Fun Products and we made the world's first clear telephone with lights. So, um, that was, uh, Fortune Magazine's product of the year in 1990. And in 1990, that I was also, um, awarded Inc. Magazine, um, Entrepreneur of the Year. So kind of my thing was taking an idea, and making it happen. So anything that you can think of, oh, you know, why don't we make a clear telephone? Why don't we sell these watches all over California? Just give me an idea and then I can make it happen. So that's so kind of were- my specialty. But my goal was always like, I'm going to get one day, I'm going to get so rich. And as soon as I get rich, I'm going to open a city park because the city parks have always been my passion. Just like there's so much good can come from great city parks. I mean, it's a watering hole for the entire community. You know, it's where 
everyone, the one thing that everyone loves is to just go places and sit and watch other people. You know, that's kind of like some sort of a town square and you can go and get um, food and your children can play and you, you don't know what neighbors that you're, you're going to see. And, um, you know, just, uh, so I'd always wanted to, you know, that I've kind of like, uh, yeah, really excited to kind of create these public spaces that are just incredibly vibrant. Well, we're speaking with uh, Tutti Mar, the founder of Pogo Parks out of uh, Richmond, California, here on Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. So that's a good transition to talk about, you know, you went on this entrepreneurial adventure. I'm assuming you didn't have to wear nylons anymore. You could use your name that you wanted to use. Correcto. (laughs) So um, you struck out on this path. You learned that you had the power to do whatever you wanted. You built companies sold a bunch of products, and then somehow you ended up in Richmond, and you started to actually execute on your passion of, you know, helping parks be something that are part of a vibrant community. So take us through that story of how did you transition from this kind of, you know, very entrepreneurial but uh, more um, private company-focused type of efforts to what you're doing now? Yeah, so... uh when it turned out in 1987 that I wasn't getting rich, uh, my partner just said, look, you know, rather than waiting to get rich to do your park, just do it. You know, I never even thought about that of just doing it. So I was living in Richmond and I just started going to every single park in Richmond. I, I, that, um, Richmond has 56 parks and I went to all of them. And probably the ones that I was most taken with are eight little small parks pocket parks that the city calls play lots and uh two of the best play lots there was one solano play lot right by my house that i fell in love with and the second one was elm play lot which is a little pocket park that was in the middle of the iron triangle neighborhood in richmond that's known throughout the bay of just being a really challenged violent high poverty um inner city neighborhood and um so i kind of uh I just um, started doing a lot of research, and I looked at all, like, the greatest parks around the world. Like, what made them work? What were parks used for? What are the be- Who were the leading thinkers on parks? What are the history of parks? And basically took all the best ideas from, from, from around the world and then applied it to creating this model in Richmond I'm calling Pogo Park. Yeah, where'd you come up with the name? What's Pogo Park from? Well, the, we were trying, I mean, I'm from the business world, so everything's branding, you know, so we got to brand all things. So what is the name of this different kind of play space? You know, we wanted to have something that wasn't, if people were speaking English or Spanish or Vietnamese, that everyone could kind of say it. It wasn't like a boy or a girl. So we were just, you know, again, sitting around one night, and my partner, Julie, was thinking like, Play opportunities, something PO, and then it just suddenly came up Pogo. So you know, it's a good little name, Pogo Park. Yeah, it's it's pretty catchy. Yeah, yeah, and you guys just uh, were recognized by Google. That's actually how I found you about um, this uh, grant they were giving, and you got. I think you guys we got were a, part of the a top qu- ten. Yeah, so um, of a thousand nonprofits that applied, that they selected. Ten finalists, and the ten finalists all got two hundred and fifty thousand, and then ongoing technical support from Google. That's great. So, so it's your, just huge. your branding's working. Yeah, people are finding you guys and recognizing you. That's so exciting. So, Judy, um, I wanted to kind of I was looking on your website, and there's some elements of of parks. 
um, and this is probably from your research and now your experience. And how, how many parks have you at this point kind of touched and oh just like hundreds i mean now once he's i mean now all i do is when i go around i look at parks i or look at any kind of spaces that could be children's play spaces airports uh hospitals i mean so our thing is just creating like a different kind of play space that is really focused on letting children experience different kinds of play there's creative play there's physical play linguistic play social emotional play um so how do we create these spaces that give children the most wide variety of play opportunities okay so um you're you're always looking for the opportunities to create these play spaces and it sounds like you've now in your research and your experience, gotten some um, best practices that you you published. And I'd like to kind of talk about some of these because I think there's some interesting insights here that you have. So one of them is that you use community designers and builders, which I think is really interesting. Because there's other models out there for doing, you know, neighborhood beautifications, but a lot of times it's bringing a bunch of outside people in. Correct. and so tell me a little bit how you came to that principle of Pogo Park. Yeah, probably if I was operating in a different in a high income neighborhood, I would have a t- uh, a different approach. Like that way, like good design can be brought in from people from from the outside, and the people who are living there have such respect for quality that they're not going to trash it. But in inner city neighborhoods, the only way is to build from the inside out. I mean, you've got to engage people who live right there so they are a part of the whole transformation of the neighborhood. And the transformation of these city parks is the vehicle for the transformation of the neighborhood. Um, so that is what I realized when my little ship blew into Elm Playlot in the Iron Triangle. I had no intention of starting to work out in a neighborhood like this. It's just fate had it. I got on my ship and the ship started sailing and I landed in this city park, and this is where I had to start my work. So it had it demanded a different kind of approach. And um, in a place like the Iron Triangle, which has a lot of gangs and, a, and not a lot of um, – I wouldn't think that there's a lot of, you know um, – interior designers who are experts in play. I don't know who, who, what kind of designer you have, but how did you find those community partners in this neighborhood that you were in? The community partners. Yeah. Well, so, um, we've just been so blessed with kind of who we've met. So the first thing is I just started going and knocking on doors of all the neighbors that live there and started getting to know them. And it took maybe, it took about four years of just constantly showing up for people to actually start acknowledging me, talking to me, because it's just so much distrust of, you know, a tall white liberal person coming in to try and change things. And everyone's seen this procession of failed experiments that everybody comes in and in time that everybody leaves. So it's really been like a trial by fire to get to know all these different folks. And um, now we've really become this kind of this real family. And um, And uh, what I just started doing is like every time that I would raise money, I'd I'd hire somebody or keep pumping money into the community. So people were getting a job and their job is we have to transform this park and your job is to help us make this park work and you're going to be running it. You're going to be in charge and we're going to. So we really have like this wonderful band of of rookies who have learned to do everything that you could possibly 
think of. So, um, but one of the main things is we have learned a new language, how to do the design, how to create the park on site. So rather than handing it over to a designer who comes in, give, gets some input from the community, and then goes and does a design for the community, the community is actually generating the entire design themselves. And it's like been working fantastically. Then the, we were blessed of connecting with this company called Scientific Art Studio. They're a fabrication shop really famous for and known for building the mitt at the Giants ballpark, that big mitt yeah. in, in left field. And they just finished a $3.5 million renovation of the zoo um, at the playground at the San Francisco Zoo. And so um, the owners, Ron and Marin, husband and wife, are, are just um, – their business is in the Iron Triangle. So they're eight blocks from our park. So they've been like our key partners is – teaching and training local people how to turn their ideas into reality. So Ron and Marin are basically like our master trainers of help us build. And they've got incredible confidence with the city. Or the city of Richmond is confident in these folks as well for, for helping us. So now that we've got this wonderful partnership going is the neighbors are building the park themselves, and um, it's all past all the certification and the ADA and the whole thing. So, and the the money that we're raising to redevelop this park is in large part being directed back into the com- the community. So the community is getting jobs to actually do the work themselves. So, as everybody walks by, everybody knows somebody who's working there. So it's been, I mean, in the few years we've occupied this one park that we've not had a single incident of graffiti or tagging or anything because wow. it's just such a respected place. What now. was the name of the, the park again? Elm Playlot. Elm Playlot. So this is like really, the trees. Yeah. No. This is the first kind of flagship This is the first project. Pogo Park. This is the first pilot. Okay. And it's really like right now, if I just come down to 8th Street in Richmond and see it, it is spectacular. So you were talking about starting kind of getting involved with parks in the 80s, but Pogo Park itself started relatively recently, it sounds like. Yeah, it it started in uh, January 1997. Okay. So, you know, it's been like a seven-year journey of getting here. Okay. And um, you're listening to Tutti Mara, the founder of Pogo Park here on Calex. And this is Method to the Madness, a show dedicated to the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. And some of your other design principles, I think, were really fascinating. You talked about dedicated staff, which I think is a big part of what you do, right? As you you feel like the transformation can't just be the park; you have to have someone there who's helping to facilitate the free, the play. Is that right? You're right. I mean, the one innovation with Pogo Park, which isn't really an innovation, it's just what we're doing is ripping off the idea, the great ideas from from around the world. But there's many countries now that have. S- people that are trained in something called play work and they are trained how to use play to foster the healthy development of children so in norway and denmark for for instance and also in england play that you can get a degree in play work so these folks come into the the playground and they seed the playground each day for high high quality play like if it's a hot day they're they're going to put out water or some sort of water play if it's a um they'll put out um 
things called loose parts of sticks and stones and natural materials and, and fabric and boxes and stuff. So children can kind of can create their own environment rather than having the environment imposed like, okay, here's a slide and you got to slide on this. I mean, kids can, you know, turn a log into a spaceship and they can. So, uh, so what we want to do is install play workers at Elm Playlot is just have people there all day long that their job is create this incredible imaginative, uh, imaginative high quality play space for children. That is your job and create a safe and welcoming environment for all the families. So you're, you know, you're like the vibe master. Make, uh-huh. make everyone come in, have a good vibe and give kids a place to play. And this becomes the watering hole of the entire community. And even now, people are starting, they're trying to buy houses around our park because they all just want their kids to run outside and go to the only safe green space in the Iron Triangle right now. Nice. I, I think that I want that job title, Vibe Master. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, here's another uh, of your uh, design principles I found um, interesting because, you know, this is you – know, you're kind of – it feels like you're building your template because you want to mm-hmm. do this a lot of places. So um, you talk about um, having basic amenities. There's must-have amenities that must be there. Um, comfortable places to sit, shade, drinking fountains, and restrooms. So how did you arrive at that conclusion? Well, if you ask anybody in the entire world, if you go to a playground, what what do you want? And everyone's going to have that same thing. Like, first of all, you know, you got to have a drinking fountain. You know, if kids are playing, they, you know, you got to get some water. Second, you got to have a bathroom because you, you, you don't want to go to the playground with your four kids. You got one kid's going to go to the bathroom. Well, where are you going to go? And then... Um, Parents, the whole thing about going to the park is you want to sit in the shade, chill, talk with your talk with the other parents, and watch your children play. So you don't have to deal, you know. I mean, this is the good; it's supportive of the parents, right? And then, if you ever want to make a public space come to life, bring food in and bring music, you know. So, uh, we managed at our first. Poco Park at Elm Playlot in Richmond of getting all those things in. And um, the uh, snack bar was really tough because I went to the city of Richmond and said, hey, look, the community would really like to have a snack bar and we want to cook our own food and we want to serve it. And the city said, hey, Tootie, great idea. The only problem is we have an ordinance that prevents the sale of foods from city parks, so no go. Um, So we worked with... um, a group of nonprofit attorneys in Oakland to come and work, and, and it took us two years to work with the city to overturn the ordinance to uh, allow the sale of food from a city park. So Pogo Park in Richmond is the pilot. So we've got food, we've got bathrooms, we've got cool places to, shade, to, to sit in in the shade, and we've got just an outrageously great play environment. Wow, that's that's amazing! Like you're actually overturning laws to get what you what that's you right. want, <laughs> and that I guess you know <clears throat> would definitely engender the the trust that you talked about building with the community. They see you as a a major partner in getting stuff done, which is really exciting. Uh, what occurs to me though is how would you how would you be able to? This is a long project. How would you think about replicating this in other places when you know? the time frame might want to be shorter to actually make the impact. It sounds like this has been a years-long project. Yeah. Well, we got, kind of have like the Pogo Park, big Taj Mahal, 
pilot ship. And then we also have these little, the little tugboat pogo park where we can go into any kind of unclaimed forgotten land and quickly and rapidly build a, a children's play space and then put a shipping container in for $3,000 that doubles as an office and just put somebody there in a hat with a badge and a radio that looks official and suddenly in two, three months you've got a playground. So uh, that could run these high quality play experiences for children. So there's that is kind of where I see is the future of Pogo Park is we kind of have an a la carte um, items that we but but um, the we can go two ways of doing like this deep community transformation by reclaiming and doing it like big time or do these small little um, guerrilla tactics like just go out there and set it up and get it occupied which by the way that we're already that we've been doing um so we've had that we have a couple of parks that are our pop-up parks that we've just gone into and claimed and operated that were low in cost and deep in impact so two ways that's exciting um and you know it, it, because it, one of the keys is having a staff uh, there it seems like that's a big question for the organization is how do you fund that if you're going to have be hiring people which i think you know objectively outside that seems like a brilliant move because then you have a community member whose livelihood is tied to the park's success so they're going to be much more motivated to actually you know drum up the support and get things going but how do you view that in terms of you know making that a long-term sustainable um, position that you're creating. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've sat and thought about this many, many a night because uh, this is the the um, key thing is how do you sustain the funding for the staffing? And, you know, it really just looking from a business perspective, you have to have the diversified income stream. So it could be quarter of the funding is going to come from the government. So it could be the city of Richmond is coming in with city staff on certain days. So that cuts part of our staffing down. It could be, then it's also going to be, um, contracts with, um, uh, you know, our earned income, um, that we've got, um, you know, and then, uh, foundation. So it, it, it's, it is going to be a diversified, income stream through multiple ways of of raising the funding for staffing okay all right um and we know one more question i want to ask and kind of the um you know what intrigued me was this idea of the oasis of safety Mm. and i know that the staff is a big part of that but um that's you know really when you talk about transformation like a place like the iron triangle from at least from an outsider perspective all you hear is Oh, it's so dangerous. You know, you don't want to be there. You mm-hmm. don't want to be there when night falls. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're talking about an oasis of safety in the middle of that. It, tell me a little bit about how you think about that. Well, our little park, Elm Playlot, has become that. I mean, it has become the one place that all the guys who want to do bad things, no, don't go and do it there because the community really has taken it back. And the beautiful thing around this one park is there's all the houses that face it look right over the park and everybody who's living there is totally investing in keeping it up it it it, it up and um the way that it's become safe is it's busy all the time and somebody's always there so if you're going to go do your your bad thing everyone knows go do it over there and uh so there's been tremendous respect from the community and also a lot of people doing the bad things 
our relatives of people or people who are at our park know all their families. So um, it does feel like there's some sort of code to not touch it, you know. And um, the main thing, though, is to, to, to keep that there is to, you know, is to keep investing in having this staffing. Because really, the, you think about it, we're, we're spending $72 million on the police in Richmond, 72, and that it might cost 100000 in staffing time to just create this oasis for literally thousands of kids because the Iron Triangle is one of the most densely populated, has more kids per square foot than any other neighborhood in Richmond. When we looked at the census, and I'll tell you the numbers are low because there's a lot of families don't report, um, there's something like 3,500 children within a five-minute walk of Elm Playlot from age 0 to 11. Wow. So there are thousands of kids all locked inside watching video games, just blowing their mind, drinking sugary drinks, and suddenly here's this place that they know if your school's not doing well, if you're not doing well at home, that you can always walk outside Monday through Friday. There's an adult at the park. You're going to go to an environment that's safe where people care about you. And it's just been a lot of kids are having problems at home because their parents are just you know, out. They're just coming there all day long. So it's really because, you know, it's safety comes in numbers. The more people are there occupying it and using it, the less problems that we're having. So That's really exciting. We're talking to Tootie Mara, the founder of Pogo Park out of Richmond. Um, and um, Tootie, we have about 30 seconds left. Give me five years from now, if everything goes exactly the way you would want it, what would Pogo Park be doing? Pogo Park would be sending teams out to help communities build these little pop-up parks all over the country, that we'd be sharing all of our best practices at no charge to all. With the underlying goal is like, let's, as a country, become known as a place that is creating great, magical places for children to play. Because with high-quality play is the way to really build healthy and innovative and imaginative children. Well, it's a great vision from a great entrepreneur, one of Cal's own, an alumni. So thanks for coming back onto campus and talking to us. Thank you. Um, and this has been Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley. You can learn more about Pogo Park at pogopark.org. Is that right, Judy? Correct. And uh, you can learn more about us by going to the CalX website and searching for Method to the Madness. Uh, thanks for joining and have a great Friday, everybody.